welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Home Efficiency. Hello, clean tech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community? Do it for a living? Make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Check out. We're here for another episode of Clean Tech Talk. This week, we're talking with Josh Goldman, co-founder and CFO, CTO of Cobold Metals. Uh, it's a fascinating young company with uh, major investments from the uh, Breakthrough Energy Institute, I believe, um, Equinor. You can perhaps speak a little bit more about how you've got started and, and who's helping you get started. And uh, I think dozens of PhDs in this in in the battery uh, and statistics and mathematics and physics fields. Um, so I guess to start off, Josh, could you just yeah give us a little bit of an intro on who you are as a company and um, why we should care? Hi, Zach. Thank you so much. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. So Cobalt, we are we are a mineral exploration company. But as you point out in your introduction, we have an unusual composition relative to other exploration companies. A majority of the team are data scientists and software engineers, most of them with PhDs in the physical sciences. And alongside them, we have an extraordinary team of mineral explorers, geoscientists. Now, the, the company's objective is to discover new deposits of the critical resources that we need for EVs. As you have highlighted on the podcast with other guests, we need an extraordinary amount of these critical materials. In our view, it's over $4 trillion worth of cobalt, of nickel, of lithium, copper, in order to transition the light duty vehicle fleet to electric vehicles. And ultimately the question is, where are these resources gonna come from? And Dozens of new mines will need to be developed, but before they can be developed, we actually have to make discoveries of those new resources. So Cobalt was founded to tackle this challenge. We're going to make discoveries of the new, new critical resources for batteries. But as you, as you well know, it's, these, it's getting harder and harder to discover new ore deposits. The easier to, deposit, to discover deposits have been found. I mean, humans have been walking the earth for, uh, for, for millennia, and we have noticed outcropping mineralization. Copper sulfides weather to beautiful blue minerals like malachite, and people, upon finding these, have been digging them up and smelting them now for thousands of years. 
And discovering that next generation of ore deposits is more challenging. We're looking for deposits under, under thicker cover. Uh, we're looking for deposits that are concealed. The exploration methods that allowed us to make the last great generation of discoveries are not necessarily going to yield the next generation of discoveries. And you see this in declining discovery rates in the industry. See the industry spending more and more exploration capital on base metal discoveries, more in the last decade than the previous three decades combined, and making substantially fewer discoveries. And so there are, there are lots of really interesting developments in exploration techniques that are required but ultimately, if we're going to be successful at finding the ore deposits that we need in order to, to complete this transition to electric vehicles, we have to use data much more effectively. We have to be looking for signals in the data that aren't just visible to the eye. We have to be using more sophisticated statistical techniques, and we have to be really careful about understanding what an anomaly is and about quantifying the uncertainty in our predictions so that we spend our exploration capital to best narrow the uncertainty and understand where there is potential for additional mineralization in the subsurface. So Cobalt's team was assembled for this purpose. We built the company around using technology to guide our exploration programs in the field. We are an exploration company. We don't, we don't sell or license technology. We send our geologists to the field to conduct exploration on mineral interests that we own. Uh, and the, the whole company is oriented towards, uh, towards making discoveries and bringing those resources to production. When did you get started? We were founded in 2018. Uh, we closed our financing in late 2018 with Breakthrough Energy Ventures and Andreessen Horowitz and began in 2019 to assemble our team and our portfolio. You're a true baby. You have still on the bottle. This is a <laughs> very, very <laughs> we, young. We are indeed. Uh, <laughs> I, I was like, gosh, yeah, I don't recall covering uh, this company before. Uh, but, um, well, it's a fascinating combination of, you know, uh, sort of Silicon Valley software and, and data focus and sort of uh, lean, you know, lean uh, business kind of approach to such an old and capital intensive industry. Um, so do you want to uh, give any like kind of overview figures of where the cobalt and nickel markets are today and how you see that evolving in the next five to 10 years? Do you have that off the top of your head or, <laughs> or, or, or available to chat about? Yeah. I mean, I can, you know, there are, there are lots of analysts who have different views on that. Uh, on you know, the, the growth of, of EV market penetration and on, uh, on the supply that's required. But I, I like to think about it in, you know, in a sort of handful of, uh, of figures. You know, first, the, you know, the need for the right raw materials for EVs. You know, the, the highest energy density or highest specific energy batteries are the ones that are cobalt rich or nickel rich. And if you think about what the the highest quality cathode material is, it's still lithium cobalt oxide. That's what you have in your mobile phone, in your laptop, in your tablet. When you want performance and you're not concerned about cost and you don't have stringent limitations on battery chemistry, on, on, uh, uh, on the availability of the raw materials, so you can choose whatever chemistry gives you the highest performance. So you use cobalt. And if there were abundant cobalt, 
that's what we would be using in EV batteries. Now you see the industry moving to nickel-rich battery chemistries because in order to in order to maintain a a, a stable layered layered metal oxide cathode uh, with high energy density and good charging rates, nickel is nickel oxide is the is the next best material with a bit of cobalt in there to stabilize the lattice, uh, and you you see these big nickel supply constraints as well. So the the numbers I think about depends on the battery size and exactly what chemistry you're using, but something like five to 10 kilograms of cobalt in an EV, 50 to 75 kilograms of nickel in an EV. Um, you know, cobalt production in, in round numbers is a little over 100,000 tons a year, of which a little more than half today is gonna to be used for batteries. Uh, the global cobalt reserves are only about 7 million tons, and we need two to three times current reserves to electrify the light duty vehicle fleet. Nickel which, today is which many about- which many people sort of see as happening by 2030. I mean, the the forecasters tend to put it out further. The the more bullish um, EV fans think 2030 is a reasonable time to assume uh, new vehicle sales transition to EVs. But as you're saying, that would need to, the the cobalt production would need to increase. Would you say by how much? But uh, so I was what I was describing was to get to electrify the whole vehicle fleet by 2050. We need okay. two to, and, and by 2030, I hope we are, we're talking about, you know, a high market share of, you know, of 30, 40, maybe some people are more, more aggressive here, but 30 or if 30 or 40% of new vehicle sales by 2030 are EVs, maybe up to 50%. That's fantastic. In order to get to the whole vehicle fleet, we actually need the rest of the fleet to turn over and whatnot. So I think it's going to be yeah. 2040, 2050 minimum to actually to turn over the whole fleet. But yeah. And, like, and so, as, well, just going to say, and so, so you do have, you're using the somewhat more conservative. I mean, they're not like the super conservative forecast, but the 20, 2030 forecast of 30 to 50%, it's sort of, you know, what, uh, what uh, Volkswagen or Bloomberg NEF might talk about. Whereas there's a lot of people who think that um, the, the S curve, the, the, the growth will be much steeper than people are assuming. But I think every discussion about that these days comes down to batteries. So it comes down to whether or not the battery minerals will be available and available at a, at a large enough capacity, production capacity to be affordable, to have to keep those low EV battery prices. Uh, so do you think that kind of, you know, 20, 30% to 50% market share by 2030 is... Do you see that because of constraints constraints in the basic um, mineral production industry, or do you think it's uh, or are you you just going with that percentage because of kind of assumed adoption trends and um, the consumer demand? I I, I think that even a thirty percent market share for electric vehicles in twenty thirty would require extraordinary growth in production of battery mineral resources. And the, the only way to meet that is through discoveries that are being made in the next couple of years and brought to production at really quite extraordinary timelines, uh, which, is, which is a topic we should come back to because there's only, yes. there's only yeah. so much one can do through force of will to bring mineral resources into production. It's, uh, yeah, well, well it's, can, you, yeah, can you speak a little bit about that right now? Because I've heard you know, for lithium mines, I think like five to seven years to get a, a mine 
up to production once you've decided to, to do it. Um, can you speak yeah, about the, the, the timeline required, you know, from, fi- from identifying to full production of a cobalt or nickel mine? Absolutely. Let me, let me provide a little bit of color on why it takes so long first. Sure. And you, you got to do a lot of work before you justify drilling a hole in the ground. <laughs> uh, drilling is not inexpensive. Uh, and so you got to build, you got to build the case and collect the data beforehand, which includes mapping and, and sampling and geochemical assaying and often airborne geophysical surveying and follow-up ground geophysical surveying. And you get some information, you analyze it, you plan your next data collection effort, you find an anomaly, you try to ground truth and test your anomaly and, and validate it or, or, or falsify your, your idea that there might be something interesting there. Uh, and then go test your anomaly with a drill hole. And that cycle can take many, many, many years and, and it's because the data is always ambiguous. And one of Cobalt's objectives is to accelerate that part of the process dramatically, that we actually take information that we learn in the field, feed it back through our analytical system and retrain the model, in some cases overnight, uh, and feed it back to the team in the field or to the Airborne Geophysical Survey in, in progress and add data points, change the, change the survey plan adaptively so that we're collecting more information on much, much more rapid cycle time. So we get to the relevant information to put together the case for a drill test much more quickly. Then once you actually drill test and target, and if you are successful and you identify mineralized intersections in your drill hole, you don't know yet whether or not you have a deposit. You don't know how extensive it is in 3D and whether the mineralization is contiguous. You have to test the continuity of mineralization and the extent of it with more drill holes uh, to reduce the uncertainty and start to start to build up a, a geostatistical model of what the resource might be. The way we do this is, is we do it in a probabilistic way where you have an, an ensemble of realizations of the subsurface and you understand the uncertainty in the resource size and you plan your follow-up drill program to reduce the uncertainty in your model, likewise with surface data collection. And then you start to build up an idea of what's in the subsurface, and then you, you need a plan for getting, the, for getting the ore out of the ground to surface. You need a plan for separating the metals for the, from the ore, and then of getting your metal or concentrate products to market. And you have to do all of this with an environmental and a social license to operate. You find the minerals where you find them, and that at times is quite remote. Uh, there is someone who lives there and has an ancestral claim on the land, and you have a responsibility to engage with the local community from the time that you start your exploration program. And if your attitude is, you know, move fast and break things, then if you break your relationship with the community who's hosting you there, then you won't be able to operate at all doesn't matter what's in the ground and that takes time you have to build up the trust of the community in order to operate Uh, and you're you're not bringing the social you're not bringing the silicon valley mindset to that part of the the story right (laughs) the move fast and break things and we're still we're still all just talking about planning this is all still the planning exactly and this is before you start constructing a mine right this is engagement with community and environmental and and you know, and, and, you know, 
good environmental practice and good community engagement starts before your first geologist arrives at the site. Yeah, it was first airborne uh, survey begins. And, yeah, a previous previous life of mine has uh, got a master's degree in city and regional planning, and actually that process that we're talking about very briefly would ideally take months. Uh, you would spend months uh, sort of cre- setting up that relationship, getting social buy-in, uh, in order to not have a disaster down the road. I mean, th- th- to be nice, but also to be prudent as a business person so that you don't end up getting halted uh, at a very costly point. So, I mean, it, it sounds simple, but I'm sure, like you said, from the first survey and it would be a, something that would go over the course of months or, or longer to, to get ready, right? Yeah, it's, in, it's years, not months. And because it, all of this happens in, in parallel with the exploration program and then eventually the development program. So it's it's really important, and there, uh, you know, in, and it's you know, if we just think about what we're trying to do here, I mean, ultimately, we're excited about EVs not just because they accelerate quickly, but we're excited about EVs because electrifying personal transportation, and then don't forget sourcing the electricity from low or zero carbon sources, is an absolutely critical component of mitigating or forestalling the worst climate impact. And that the you know the cost of that should not be that we're you know we're damaging communities and the environments where we're extracting those mineral resources. Uh, we we have a responsibility to sustainably develop the mineral resources that fuel the EV revolution, and that's a that's a core part of Cobalt's mission as well. So there's you know there's it, there's a hard technical problem. And you have to do that with the constraints of the environment and the and the support of the community where the mineral resources are, and that is <laughs> that that is a that's a very challenging problem and it takes some time. Now there are you know there there are examples of where this goes you know relatively relatively quickly. Uh, you can you can point to plenty of examples like this. Um, uh, Sirius Resources and IGO's Nova Bollinger deposit in Australia was discovered in 2012, and uh, it, was, uh, it was sold in 2015. It was put into production in 2018. It's now producing nickel from a nickel sulfide deposit. So, so uh, six years was a quick. Six years. Quick, six years from for... discovery to production, and that's extraordinary. That's you know yeah. things went very very well. Uh, you know. The, so just. So just to clarify, so you're focused on, the discovery phase and and how far beyond that so we will continue to own and invest in assets as long as we can add value to them and as it turns out uh, careful use of of data and application of statistics and machine learning and other techniques is valuable over the life cycle of the asset we can continue to add value to assets as they're in production and in fact often the biggest discoveries are not made uh, initially. Often the best discoveries are made after an initial deposit is, is delineated and even after commercial production begins. The, uh, the, the Raglan mine in, in Northern Quebec, uh, a, a great deposit was made between the mine and the airstrip. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's extraordinary. And they, the best deposit could be a few hundred meters away from where you're where you're actively mining or developing. Um, our, our plan is that we intend to take assets into feasibility study 
and then to bring in partners to help with construction and operation. We may continue to own interests in those mines because we have an opportunity to continue to add value and because we have long-term incentives for development going well. Uh, but ultimately the capabilities of an exploration company and the capabilities of constructing and operating mines are related, but quite distinct. And while I wouldn't rule out that Cobalt might put our resources into production or some of our resources into production ourselves, and if we are successful in finding some really large, really extraordinary deposits, it will be natural for us to bring in uh, very experienced mining companies as partners to help construct and operate those mines. And in fact, uh, Cobalt, while we, we do own a number of our assets 100%, um, we also have partners. We do, we, we're, we're interested in using data most effectively and whether that data is data we collect or data that has been collected over, over decades of activity by other mining companies. And so partnerships is a core part of our business model. Uh, and, uh, and we do partnerships with both majority and minority interests as well. Great. This is a great overview. Um, so, uh, yeah, just speaking, stepping back for one moment on the uh, the kind of market as it is today and as it needs to be by 2025, 2030. Um, do you see a big crunch in what's needed for cobalt and nickel that will be solved by existing, you know, by the market, you know, market, normal market mechanisms, major, major miners, uh, investors sort of naturally organically or with, with you know help of you know more more newcomers like you um using more advanced methods or do you see a kind of a critical need for sort of a breakthrough in the industry to sort of break down big walls big barriers to uh to necessary growth yeah it's so you know Will there be a supply crunch, and how does the how does the market meet this potential demand? Uh, yeah, that's a better you know, that's a better way to phrase it. Yeah, there, <laughs> there's a few a few ways to think about this question. And what so what is the market mechanism for for solving this problem? The market mechanism is that there's an incentive for exploration companies like us, as well as majors and and juniors, to go discover new mineral resources and put them into production. And of course, that manifests through a price signal. Uh, but as you know, as we know well, uh, there's not a there's not a long dated forward curve for cobalt or for nickel. And in fact, even the spot price is problematic. You know, cobalt is a very very thinly traded contract on on LME, for example. It's not like iron ore or you know, West Texas Intermediate crude where trading volumes are in one or two order orders of magnitude larger than physical deliveries. Here, we're talking about trading volumes that are a few percent of physical deliveries. And uh, most, you know, most contracts are, 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 most of these commodities are sold on, on long-term supply agreements. They're not sold in spot market transactions. And so there's even some question of whether the spot price is a, a particularly meaningful signal. So, you know, is there, is there a price signal? Um, certainly, you know, even at, at you know, today's spot price, there you can see that there is an incentive to go develop particularly new new nickel sulfide resources. Um, but you know where are we going to see the price signal that provides an incentive 
And where's the kind of mismatch in timelines between when the price signal manifests and how long it takes to make discoveries and whatnot? You see, you know, look at the look at the price run up in, in cobalt through 2018-19, and you saw all of these companies on the ASX and and the Canadian Venture Exchange chasing cobalt and issuing press releases and changing their name uh, to things that are cobalt related. And then kind of reinventing themselves towards other base metals once once cobalt was no longer of interest to the investor segment who are who are sponsoring those companies. That timeline is just completely at odds with the timeline for building a technology program and taking a whole you know, province-wide or, or you know, mineral province-wide approach to an exploration program and developing targets and testing them and delineating resources and bringing them into production. That, that takes many years and you have to, you, know, you have to have a reasonable expectation that you're going to, to create value over the long term. So from a, you know, from a fundamental perspective, we look at the demand for battery materials in the latter half of the 2020s and see plenty of price support for both cobalt and nickel. And we take a very long-term view without responding to the vicissitudes of the spot market price in looking for those kinds of resources. And there are, you know, other, uh, other companies, particularly, you know, the major and mid-tier mining companies who take a long view towards resources like copper and nickel and see the need for those to support economic development on a decadal time scale and are looking for mineral resources that are going to produce over multi-decade timescales through commodity cycles. And that's ultimately how, how value is, is continuously created in the industry. So, you know, to your question about a, a supply crunch, and um, there it is tricky to look at, you know, to look at the next five years and see where the cobalt and nickel come from. Those demands are already pretty severe. I mean, you look at the automakers' production plans, and you know, you see you see many of the automakers committing to things like 50% of their new vehicle sales will be electric. Ford by 2022, Toyota and Volvo by 2025, BMW by 2030, 50% by sales volume. That's extraordinary. And so it's already pretty severe resource constraints to get there by 2025. And by 2030, that's really where we see the need for new mineral resources uh, to meet those needs. Uh, and Interesting. Those are, those, are, those are supplies that need to be discovered in the next several years in order to be in production by the late the late 2020s and that's that's ultimately the game that we're in now if you know if there's how might those things occur without discovery of, of you know really high quality mineral resources well there's a couple of ways uh, one of them is that you know the this is the one we want to avoid is that the industry has to adapt by curtailing their plans or by producing less high quality vehicles, smaller batteries, you know things 40 kilowatt hour batteries instead of 60 or 80 kilowatt hour batteries, and that means you know more compact vehicles or uh, reduced vehicle range. That's what we're trying to avoid because ultimately consumer adoption is what's going to drive continued support in public policy. Now, the, and are we also is is there also uh, a a risk of of the prices going up a lot in the next few years where it wouldn't be feasible and um, the EV prices wouldn't come down enough for consumer demand to to rise as expected? Is that part of that challenge that that thing that we're avoiding? Yeah, so I think it's it's a significant component of it. I mean, if you look at you know at, at um, 
at you know at spot prices, you're you're looking at cobalt and nickel being in in, in round numbers a thousand dollars of the cost of uh, um, of an electric vehicle. And so if the if the prices rise somewhat, uh, then yes, that you know is that going to change consumer buying decisions? How much elasticity of uh, of demand is there around the price of the electric vehicle? It's important to be sure. The question is whether that sends enough of a price signal on the right time scale for development of new mineral resources. And it's yeah. possible, and- at least you know, in, in the nickel space, that the issue really is that you have lower cost production from sulfide resources and higher cost production from laterite resources. Laterites are really difficult to process and they're great for producing nickel pig iron, and but extracting class one nickel from laterites and trying to use that as a battery material is really challenging. There's a lot of room for technological innovation and processing there, but it's a very expensive game to play. Doing that at commercial scale is a billion dollar activity. And so those are going to be the marginal resources and they're going to be expensive. And, and, we think and you, still- mm-hmm. you also mentioned a moment ago, like um, the spot prices are probably quite disconnected, irrelevant to the long-term contract prices that so it's more about making sure that those long-term contracts are going to match future demand uh, and just whether they do or don't is, is the question, right? Yeah. I mean, I think if, you know, if you are a, an exploration company and you make a discovery of a nickel sulfide resource, you've got this great opportunity to produce class one nickel for the battery market. And you're not going to have a shortage of off-takers, either from uh, battery material companies, from refiners or cathode raw material manufacturers or or automakers themselves. Uh, You will find long-term off-take agreements, and I'm confident. I'm confident that those agreements can be uh, can be executed at a price that will provide for an attractive return to the investors in developing that nickel sulfide resource, for example. Cool. Yeah. So, so, I mean, so there is, but there is still a big question. I mean, basically if uh, we're expecting 30 to 50% market share by 2030, but then the market, you know, we saw Europe last year's um, above 10% market share. Some countries like Netherlands ended the year with 72% market share EV sales, of course, sort of unique situation, but still above 20% in several countries. Uh, so if, if the market demand grew a lot faster than people have sort of been expecting and the market was there for, you know, 100% by 2030, um, the real question is how much investment will have gone into cobalt, nickel, lithium production a decade <laughs> at, at this point right now and in the next couple of years to make that possible? And so, so there's one question of what the market is expecting and, and delivering. And then the other question of how difficult it is to get uh, to identify and mine new resources. So, you know, you've already talked about that a little bit, but um, yeah, try, I, guess, I guess I'm curious to hear more on what cobalt, 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 it's hard to say cobalt, not, not, not cobalt, uh, what you guys are doing that's, uh, so special to try to hasten the, the discovery process, improve it to make sure you, you know, I guess, finding minerals that wouldn't be found otherwise or wouldn't be found as quickly or as, uh, you know, understood as well. 
Yeah. So could you speak a little bit more about those, those aspects? Yeah. Thank you. Look, I think, you know, to your first question, um, I am delighted when I see that in some countries have really extraordinary market share, obviously Norway has been a leader here, for example, um, with you know, greater than 50% share in uh, even in the first half of 2020 for electric vehicle sales. Uh, while I would love to see it, I think we won't see, we can say that confidently, we will not see 100% market share in 2030 because we don't have the raw materials to supply that. The industry cannot respond fast enough. And automakers, you, you see that propagate back through the supply chain and automakers will not plan to produce those vehicles yeah, if they can't create raw materials to do so. And that's that's the world we're in. And that and that creates the urgency for you know, for why Cobalt is here in the first place. Now, in terms of, of what we do as an exploration company, so there's an extraordinary amount of data to begin with. There's really fragmentary public data in geologic maps of many different vintages. Uh, patchworks of, of geochemical surveys and, and geophysical surveys, which in some in some countries are are publicly available um, based on disclosure rules. Not always not always available on a website as they might be in in Canada or Australia, but are are through some uh, through some spade work in archives. You can you can unearth publicly available data. Uh, and then there's a great great deal of data that has been collected by exploration companies over over decades, and that is is not being fully utilized. And there's a, a whole variety of reasons for that. And one is that different data sets have to be used together in order to find the kind of signals that you can't see just by looking at the data visually. There's, there's extraordinary technology that goes into collecting some of these data sets, uh, you know, uh, high sensitivity geochemical assay methods, um, uh, you know, vector geophysical measurement techniques, high resolution spectroscopic data from satellites. These are extraordinary technologies that have only become available in, in some cases in the last you know, 10 or 15 years. And, but, these are all of these different measurements are of the physical properties or the composition of some volume of rocks and are correlated with each other. And in order to draw out the subtle signals that are going to indicate an anomaly that isn't the highest value of nickel or copper or cobalt in the assay, but it's unusual based on where it is and how it occurs, things that can give us a subtle signal of an ore deposit buried under some cover rock sequence where you're, you're looking for some expression of the ore body underneath that's managed to propagate along a fault or, or in, you know, maybe even in a gaseous phase through some overlying rocks. And so those are difficult signals to pick up. And you have to think really carefully about the, the science of the measurement techniques and of the ore forming processes. And you, you've got to use all of the data and apply, apply appropriate statistical methods to it. And you got to think really carefully about and actually quantify the uncertainty in your measurements. Uncertainty is a, is a core concept in exploration. If we, if we had certainty about the subsurface, we'd just mine it. And, but we don't. And the goal of, of each exploration data collection effort is to reduce the uncertainty in our understanding of the subsurface. And you have to have a, an analytical system that allows you to quantify the uncertainty and go and go looking for the right kind of data in order to reduce it further. 
So ultimately, you know, the way that we think about cobalt as being valuable is that we've got to reduce the false positive rate in exploration. In a typical exploration effort, if you were to drill 100 exploratory holes, you'd make zero discoveries. That's medium performance. Making yes. one or five or 10, you know, a 90% false positive rate would be an extraordinary achievement. A 99% false positive rate, reducing the false positive rate to 99 or 95% would be extraordinarily valuable. And so that's ultimately what, what we're talking about here is we're deploying exploration capital on our projects and projects that we do with our partners. We don't, uh, we, we are a technology company, but we don't sell or license our software. We use it for our benefit on our projects and for our and our part, our and our partners benefits in our joint ventures. And we invest our capital in the projects guided by our technology. And so we're looking to put that capital to the best use so that ultimately if the, if, collectively as an industry, we're going to be successful at finding these raw materials. We need to use our exploration capital most effectively to find the most and the highest quality deposits. And using statistical methods to guide the deployment of that exploration capital is what we do at Cobalt. I understand generally, but I'm not sure if I understand uh, completely. So um, is it, are you sort of looking at uh, sort of constantly crunching numbers on if you have this this ingredient, this ingredient, this ingredient, this ingredient, your your likelihood of of getting cobalt is, you know, whatever 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 <laughs> small percentage or 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 not, and see, you know, going from point one to point three or something like this, um, uh, chance of finding uh, depending on the composition of the geology, the atmosphere, is that sort of an idea of what what you're doing or am I off base? Uh, so, so the place where you're right on point is what you're talking about there is, is absolute prospectivity. We're not just saying this place is more interested, interesting than that place. We're trying to say, is there a likelihood of finding something interesting here? And that's certainly a component of it that, you know, that alone is not enough. And um, what we're doing is we are using we're using statistics to answer a whole range of different questions, and we're looking for uh, we're looking for areas that are prospective for hosting ore deposits. And that doesn't mean that we have a black box where you put data in and you get some X, some X's on a map and let's say drill here. We're often looking for uh, a relevant feature that controls mineralization. The, the presence of the right kind of rocks that, at, that are at a scale that may not have been mapped on a really coarse geologic map. Mm -hmm. And we'll train a model to predict where we can find the right type of rocks. And then we'll go out and test that model by having our geoscientists sample it. That's an example. Looking cool. for the right kind of structures, faults that are really important for controlling mineralization. Where might those be, and can we, what can we predict about whether or not they're the right kind of structures that would be associated with mineral deposits? That's one type of question. Another type of question is in the 3D environment, where you found some resource, you have a number of drill holes already, you found mineralization containing cobalt and nickel, and you want to find more of it outside where you currently have drill holes, but maybe you have some other data at the surface. You have some electromagnetic measurements that you've taken on the ground, maybe some gravity measurements, maybe some seismic data. And you wanna predict where the ore deposit might go 
or whether or not there is any incremental mineralization and you want to plan your follow-up drill program accordingly. Then we're making predictions in 3D about the composition of the subsurface. Where might, what, what might the, the concentration of cobalt or nickel be over in this location that's not well drilled? And how can we use statistics to constrain the uncertainty around that? Um, and then a, 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 a third version, um, a variant of the first one, but you know, mapping, mapping in 2D and 3D, there are lots of geophysical methods that are used for understanding the physical properties of the subsurface, the conductivity, magnetic susceptibility, the density. And I'm talking, of course, about electromagnetic measurements and magnetic methods and gravitational methods. When you want to invert the data, you take the thing you've measured and make an inference about this about the subsurface. There are many possible realizations of the rocks and surface that uh, that are consistent with that measurement. And our system runs a whole ensemble to understand the distribution of potential realizations of the subsurface. And then, furthermore, doing those three D inversions is very computationally expensive. But there are machine learning methods that are that are very powerful that can allow you to get meaningful results much, much faster. And so what that means is that we have a better understanding of the subsurface and a better understanding of the, the, the range of possible realizations of the subsurface. And again, that informs better decision-making about where we put our exploration capital. And all of, all of these analytical methods, we apply them to data that we've built into our, our data system that stores a whole variety of geoscientific data from public sources, from data that we collect ourselves in the field and from our partners on the various joint ventures that we do. Excellent, yeah, so that is how I understood it. I did, but in all the terminology that I <laughs> didn't have access to to, uh, to, to to try to phrase the question better. Uh, but it sounds great, it sounds like a, a tremendous uh, combination merging of uh, kind of Mathematical sciences, data sciences, and and uh, the, the geophysical matters. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.